Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you today once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 659 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, it is May the 6th, 2011, and we are on the final countdown of shows that will ever come from Arlington, Texas, other than maybe... I don't know, maybe when I'm visiting family, occasionally I'll do a show when I'm down here for old time's sake or something like that. Uh, today is Friday, and that means that if you picked up the phone probably about within the last three weeks, uh, especially if it was about three weeks ago, and dialed 866-65-THINK, again, that's 866-65-THINK, uh, and left a question you might hear yourself today, and if you'd like to hear yourself in the future, we're running about three months in the rear, or three weeks in the rear right now on this. And I might start doing like one week a month doing two shows like this in a week or something to, to catch up. But uh, if you call that number, we'll try to get you on the air and get your question answered or your comment aired for you. Again, that number, 866-65-THINK. Those of you on Skype, guy called in. He's going to be on today's show. You can hear him mention he's on Skype. Hopes it came in clear. He called in from New Zealand. Uh, Skype works just fine, and we get great audio quality when you call that number from Skype. So feel free to use Skype if you wish. Uh, but it is Friday. That means it's your calls, and that means the show's all about you. So let's get into it right away, but let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping first. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original sponsor, the very first survival podcast sponsor ever, and they're still here. And they really support the hell out of the show because they give away their discount membership to the MSB for free in addition to all the other great things they do by taking care of you guys as their customers. More about that in a minute, though, because I'm going to tell you a little bit extra about the MSB today if you haven't heard it before. Uh, but Safe Castle is a great place to find everything you could possibly want for your prepping needs. And make sure you check out their sister site while you're over there at Safe Castle uh, because they do have some of the best hardened shelters you'll find. And if you've been thinking about a storm shelter, they would be people that you would want to talk to. Next up today is Fortress Self-Defense. Uh, I'll tell you what, Frank Sharp Jr. over there that runs that place does a great job. He's got an incredible resume and an, he's an incredible trainer. And one of the big things about these, you know, these a lot of these great schools that have all this great firearms training, you'd like to go, okay, but they're they're up there in the Northeast and you're down in the Southwest. And how do you organize a trip and coincide with one of their classes? And then it's an expense and you've got to travel and all. Well, guess what? Instead of doing that, one thing you could do is you could get together with a couple of your buddies, maybe reach out to a couple of their buddies, put together a group and get in touch with Frank, and he will bring the training to you. Now, how kick-ass is that? And you guys that are part of gun clubs and things like this, what an awesome thing to do. Or maybe you guys that are working with scouts that are dealing with scouts that are getting up into that Eagle Scout age or something like that, what a cool thing to put together. Uh, people out there that are running tactical websites and blogs, maybe you put something together for your readers to bring them into your local area. Think about how you can utilize something like firearms training, and when you do that, think first of Fortress Self-Defense Consultants and Frank Sharp Jr. Uh, next up, remember, connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. I have a great review coming while I'm in Arkansas next week of the new Raptor Radio. That's going to be badass. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade, and I want to do something today that I don't normally do. 
Uh, but I do it once in a while just to point out what kind of a great return of investment you get. If you join the MSB, you support the show at 20 cents an episode. I say that all the time because it's the truth. But you also get a return of investment. Here's how I mean that when I say that. Well, first of all, you get 20 videos that are available nowhere else. They're videos that I've put together when I first put the MSB together. You get discounts from 25 supporting vendors, including Safe Castle Royal, Western Botanical, Seed Savers Exchange, Honeyville Grains, KnifeKits.com, MERS-Radio.com, Survival.com, The Berkey Guy, Backwoods Home Magazine, People Powered Machines, Black Belt Magazine, Home High Mowing Organic Seeds, the SelfSufficientLife.com, the Soil Cube, CampingSurvival.com, PatrioticItemsForSale.com, CommonSensePrep.com, BulkAmmo.com, and SilverAndGoldShop.com. Those are just the discounts that you receive. You get nine free ebooks valued at over a hundred dollars, including titles like Planting Trees the Low Cost Easy Way, How to Build a Top Bar Beehive, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit. Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building an Aquaponics System, Secrets of Ballistic Striking, and Squanto's Garden. You also get downloadable MP4 versions of many of my YouTube videos. When I get up to Arkansas permanently, it will become all of my YouTube videos will be there in downloadable MP4s. You'll get zip files of every episode of the survivalpodcast.com. So you guys that are kind of new to the show, you want all 600 episodes, you don't want to go do them individually, they're in 24-episode blocks and zip files. Grab them, download them. You can just put them on your your your, your computer, your your player. You can drop them right into iTunes, and they all when you do that, they all go right in where they're supposed to to be. Um, and there's also, if you're a forum member, you can display an MSB badge on the forum. So that's what you get from the MSB. So I just want to say that today. I don't do that a lot. I don't like to take up a lot of our intro time with that. But when I say the ROI is there, I just like to back it up once in a while. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, take our first call today. Again, if you want to be on a show like this in the future, 866-65-THINK. Hi, this is Craig in West Virginia. I was at the doctor's office recently and was reading an article from the February 2011 Popular Science magazine, and they had an article about genetically modified organic foods that look like they're beginning to uh, introduce that. It looked like it was a small study, and I got called into the office at, uh, about halfway through the article, so I didn't get to read it all. But I was wondering if you could uh, maybe try to find some more information about that and uh, let us know um, about what is going on with that with genetically modified organic foods and from the Popular Science Magazine of February 2011. Thank you. Well, I found the Time Magazine article that you were talking about, and uh, there's really two sides to this, and I think it's important that we understand both sides of the concept of organic GMO and, and, and how the two are playing together. The article that you're talking about is really more specifically about the unintentional uh, contamination, if you want to call it that, of organic products with genetically modified foods. For instance, the guy in the article is a dairy farmer, and he's got these cows, and he feeds them certified organic food. So he goes and he starts testing the food that he's buying for his cattle. And lo and behold, about 6% of it comes back as having genetically modified organism genes within it. And then he spends over $10,000 tracking it back to, uh, to its source and figuring out where it's coming from and then spending time just buying, you know, then he just says, well, I'm not going to use these sources anymore and I'm only going to use these ones that are coming up GMO-free. And you ask him why, and he says, because it's a chance for us to give even more information to our consumers, and that's noble. 
and uh, will be able to say, you know, we are certified GMO-free, and they want to have a new label that would go along with organic, or maybe even if something wasn't organic, it could still be certified GMO-free. But it would take just as much effort and money for a provider to get certified GMO-free as they are right now to get certified organic. And here's the big problem with his little plan, folks. He can do all of this stuff. He can spend all of this money. And if he doesn't do it again six months from now, there's no guarantee it hasn't happened again and again and again because these genetically modified organisms cross-pollinate. And that's the way that this is. not somebody was selling him GM crops and lying to him. It's that the providers of the, the, the feed believe they were doing things organically. They were doing things exactly the way they're supposed to, yet the genes get in there. Why? Because pollen moves through the biosphere. And all this crap about if we just use safe planting distances, Monsanto guarantees you it will not be infiltrated. And if our genes are on that farmer's farm, my God, and if they don't have a license for it, they stole them and we will go find them and sue them using the seed police, which is what they do. Well, here's another example of people trying to trying to live within the system. We'll do certified organic. You can do your GMO crap. We're mutually exclusive from each other. And let's just rock on with our lives. But it doesn't work. And again, the problem is even if the person goes through all of this crap with this voluntary new concept of GMO-free, if they're doing any kind of large-scale production, it's going to be very expensive and constant vigilance to ensure because you have to test down to the genetic level. You can't look at it and tell. And basically, what I'm telling you is the genie's out of the bottle. There's GMO genes going everywhere. And anything that's especially corn... Uh, it's fixing to be alfalfa, soy, your major crops like that. There's some level of that contamination in there. But then there's the other side of the coin. This is the one you really have to understand to understand how big the threat is. Right now, people like Monsanto and ConAgra are saying, look, we're natural, right? Now, we give this corn that's designed to be sprayed with atrazine to, to some farmers and They're not organic, and they spray it with atrazine, and that's the mass-produced food. And if, if they didn't do that, organic farmers, well, you wouldn't even have anything to sell to. You might as well just you know do what they're doing. So the fact that they're doing that is actually what creates your niche market, your organic market. So they're good for you. But let me tell you something else, organic farmers. There's really nothing wrong with genetically modified organisms, organic farmers, organic providers, especially the big providers of organic stuff like Whole Foods. Right, the big corporate entities that have embraced this. It's generally recognized as safe. Just because it's genetically modified doesn't mean you need to spray it with atrazine. Okay, we admit if you spray it with atrazine, it's not organic anymore. That's the way it should be. But let me let me bounce this off your organic community. At Monsanto, we can make a corn with bacterial fungosis in the corn. Now, you know bacterial fungosis is safe because you organic corn farmers already use it. You spray it on your corn. Because it's a naturally occurring organic bacteria that only infects the corn borer worm. People can eat it and it won't hurt them. They would have to get it in their eyes in large concentrations to have any problems whatsoever. It's just not a threat to human beings. And you guys all know that because most of you guys growing corn at large scale organics are using it now. So what if the corn just had it in it already? Then you wouldn't have to spray it. So instead of corn that makes you spray more, you'll spray less. See? We can be organic, too, in the GMO world. And as soon as they force their way in, and that's what they're trying to do, they're going to use USDA and everything else, and they're trying to force their way into the organic community. And then they're going to turn all the people like us that have been opposing this stuff the whole way and go, 
It's organic, dummy. Come on, they're safe. Because organic has become nothing but a marketing scam in reality. We need to come up with full disclosure is what we need to have. This is where I get my supplies. This is what's in it. This is what I do. And let consumers make a decision based on those things. But that's what's going on. It's two sides of the coin. It's the organic community fighting back to try to add a GMO-free certification. But it's also the seductiveness of the devil saying, let us play ball with you. We can make you better. We can give you things that you don't have to worry about. And you can use. we can solve your problems of no fertilizer. We can solve your problems of no insecticides. We can solve your problems and we can do it naturally because it's just genetic modification. That's what they're saying. And they'll probably win this fight sooner or later. All right, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Matt in Michigan. Sorry to bog you with another question, but I'm designing my uh, 40 by 100 foot garden here and had some concerns about deer, rabbits, and raccoons in my area and was wondering in terms of plants that I could put in as repellents as well as uh, plants that would be beneficial for beneficial insects as well as repelling the insects that we don't want. Uh, I wondered what your thoughts would be for an area that large to sort of do some wildlife management in that space. So any suggestions you have would be of great help. Thanks. All right, I'm, uh, I'm going to have to answer this in two totally different blocks because they're two totally different questions. One... Uh, there is nothing you're going to plant that's really going to repel a deer, a raccoon, or a rabbit. Uh, there's some pretty good deer repellents out there. The ones that are blood-based are the most effective with deer. If you have problems, and, and this is the thing, make sure you have a problem before you worry too much about it. Uh, but if you have a problem with raccoons, and raccoons are going to be mostly your problem with corn, uh, a low, low single-wire electric fence, very inexpensive to put in, one little solar panel on it to keep the battery topped off, and uh, maybe one or two lines run about a foot off the ground. They hit that once or twice, and they'll go somewhere else. Uh, that can be effective with rabbits. They're a little bit lower to the ground, but um, rabbits I've had actually a lot less problems with in gardens. We used to have rabbits in Pennsylvania everywhere. I mean everywhere. Never had a problem with them in the garden. And these were caught. I mean, if you live somewhere where there's jackrabbits, it might be a different story. I've never had to deal with them as a pest, so I'm not sure. But I'll tell you why I believe we never had rabbit problems. Our lawn was about 50% clover. And if a rabbit's got clover and other beneficial uh, things to eat everywhere, he doesn't need to go to the garden. And I think that was a big part of what it was. They preferred eating the clover. So I think if you provide some level of, let's say, natural pasture lawn um, for things like rabbits, you're going to have less of an issue. And it was just plain old Dutch white clover. Uh, down here in the south, I tend to try to use New Zealand clover. It handles the summers a little bit better. Eventually, you do seem to lose it in the midsummer, but it comes back in the fall, comes back in the spring, because um, the root system is really strong with that. So that, that's kind of the whole rabbit, deer, raccoon thing. Uh, your best bet with raccoons, though, is going to be a wire, a hot wire. It works. It works efficiently, and it's not that expensive. And the big thing with raccoons is they're not going to go after everything you plant, so you can kind of find the things that are going to be most susceptible. And corn, when it's coming, uh, when it's coming to, uh, they'll go in there and they use those little hands, just like little monkey hands, and they'll pull cobs right out, and they'll sit there and they'll gorge themselves. And that's one of the things they can really be a problem with. But um, I've never really had a problem with them. So, again, it's all about do you really have a problem. Your best deterrent is a little yippy yappy angry-ass dog that lives outside. 
I mean that that'll that'll take care of all of it. Uh, they're uh, they'll they'll run off just about anything. Uh, one thing with dogs, if you have a smaller dog and if you have surface water, uh, if a dog is willing to go into water after a raccoon, a raccoon will drown the hell out of a dog. Not all dogs, but a lot of dogs. Um, there are some dogs that are just badasses. I know a guy that has a big old white German Shepherd, and uh, he's got about a hundred acres up there in Arkansas. And he said that dog kills coons, ra- uh, groundhogs. He killed that dog kills everything. Uh, but in general, uh, dogs are very susceptible to coons in water. So it's something you have to look out for if you use dog for protection. On the beneficial insects, basically look at it this way: if it flowers, it's good. I mean that, that's that's the that's the first rule. And if it's an herb that flowers, so much the better. And if it's an herb, fine. I mean, herbs work great as well. There's certain herbs you have to be careful with that are great attractors and great for repelling some some uh, non-beneficials. But you got to think about what you're doing. Uh, anything in the mint family is a perfect example. Mint is great at attracting beneficials. So-so at repelling certain pests. But if you put it in your garden, it will grow everywhere. But you can easily take something like uh, what I did with Bee Balm, which is another member of the mint family I would also recommend. As I went to the, the Home Depot, and they have that stuff that looks like wood floor that you peel and stick and put on the floor. And a great big long three-foot strip of it is about $0.78. Cents. And I got two of those, and I rolled them together and made them into, so they're about four inches long, so eight inches deep, and dug a trench. And I put them down into the trench, and I left them just a little bit above the ground, and I planted my bee bomb in there, and it doesn't spread. It's a nice, pretty clump right in the middle of my garden bed, and every year it comes back, and those big, beautiful flowers come on, and it brings beneficials in. So anything that's a runner, you're going to want to contain the root systems. Generally, eight, eight inches to a foot deep is enough to contain those, those root systems. If you don't do it, it will take over, though. Um, some of the repellent things you can use, marigolds are classic, and they work very well. Um, I'll tell you another good beneficial attractor is going to be echinacea, and that will spread and that will grow, but it doesn't get spread at the level that something like a mint does. And actually, it's beneficial as it spreads, because what you can do is as it begins to spread, you can actually dig it up, harvest sections of the root, replant it somewhere else, and it'll regrow. So echinacea is another one I would recommend. Uh, the, the, the kind of, like I, you know, I call them like the, the, the five horsemen of, of herbs uh, that should be in every kitchen. Parsley. Dill, oregano, uh, basil, and thyme. Those are all great for the repellent characteristics. They're all great for their beneficial uh, attraction. And parsley, I'm sorry, thyme I usually don't put in that list. So parsley is another one. Uh, Parsley being a biannual, you want to plant that in a place you're going to let it winter over and it's going to flower for you in its second season. So what you want to plant is you want to succession plant parsley not just through the year but yearly. So that you always have after your second year uh, a winter over group because after it flowers in its second year it'll die and you're not bringing it back. You can get seed from it and all, uh, but you want to make parsley something that comes back uh, so you have two different uh, groups of it at all times. Uh, So those are some of the things you can do. But again, if it has flowers, it's good at attracting beneficials. One of the things we always plant down here in various areas is blue salvia, which is a type of sage. Uh, It's just beautiful. It almost looks like lavender. These high spikes of these blue plants. Bees seem like they'll migrate for, for miles to get to this stuff. The way I actually found it, we were at a nursery and there were all these gorgeous flowers just sitting out in this big parking lot. And there were bees everywhere and they were all over the salvia and they were really on nothing else. So those are some good ideas. Hopefully they'll help you. Let's go ahead and take another call.
Hey, Jack, it's Rick. I have a question regarding 55-gallon drums. My question is, is there any way to remove toxic materials from plastic drums for use in water and garden or even human consumption? I have two blue 55-gallon drums. One has been sitting outside with the bungs removed for years. The other, I know, has helped antifreeze with a small amount still on the bottom with both bungs still in. Is there anything I can do to make it safe? I've read that it's easier to clean out unused antifreeze, but I'm not sure if any toxins may have soaked into the plastic. If not, is there any other uses for it, such as holding gasoline, kerosene, or anything else for a long term? Thanks, Jack. Love the show. Good luck with the smooth transition to the BOL. Okay, I have to say that, first of all, I probably would just decide that these are going to be used for, tr for storing something that I'm not going to rely on for consumption or even watering my plants. The risk of contamination is too great. And without knowing what was in the drums, like you know one held antifreeze, you don't know what it held before. The one that's been sitting out there empty, it probably seems okay. It probably is okay. But if you use it for watering your plants, it's not just that there might be some kind of chemical leach to the soil because honestly the, the, the amount it would be so small by the time it goes through the soil, absorbed in a plant, the plant doesn't absorb it all. It's probably not, it's probably safe and it's probably no more dangerous to you individually once you cleaned it out as best you could than the fact that there's pollution everywhere. For God's sakes, we can't be sterile. Um, you know, people say, well, what, what if your garden's near a road? What if you, I mean, come on, you know? Um, Here's my concern. There could be something in there with a detrimental effect on your soil quality for your plants to grow. Uh, something with an herbicidal effect. And once that's in there, God knows how long it takes to get away. And you may find that like most of your stuff grows, but all of a sudden your, your peas and beans and other legumes don't grow. And uh, back to the last caller. I, I can't believe I missed this. Last caller uh, and that question about things for repellent. Uh, Garlic and onion planted, and, and garlic and onion chives planted throughout your garden. Uh, but you know, you might find that, uh, and I thought of that because garlic and onion keep them away from peas. Peas and onions don't like each other. Uh, the, the onions have a detrimental effect on the growth rate of peas. Uh, but anyway, uh, your legumes are going to be most susceptible to any kind of herbicidal effect. So it might not even be that there was an herbicide in there, but there might be something with that effect. So I just wouldn't risk my fertile soil over a couple drums. So I would look, you know, yeah, kerosene, gasoline, something like that. You don't really care. Um, diesel fuel, anything like that. Any kind of, you know, it, it's basically they are now chemical drums, so store chemicals in them. If I was going to do it, the first thing I would say is when you dispose of that antifreeze, make, make damn sure uh, that it's done properly because it is so toxic to pets And I would get it out of there as soon as possible and get rid of it and do it safely. Um, I lost a cat to antifreeze poisoning. It is a terrible, terrible way to die. And if you are a person that would use antifreeze to poison an animal, and I ever met you and you told me that, the next sound you would hear is the bone-crunching smack of my fist in your face because you are a piece of crap if you would kill an animal with antifreeze. It is one of the most despicable things a human being can do. And if you've ever done it and you don't like it, I don't give a shit. Don't listen to my show because you are, you are a low form of humanity. And if you don't believe it, look it up and find out what it really does. So you've got to be, and the reason I say that is I, I just want people to understand that have antifreeze in their possession, you've got to be careful with it because it's one thing to kill intentionally and for the right reasons, but to do it indiscriminately for the wrong reasons just doesn't make any sense at all. And to do it in a torturous manner is just unbelievable that anybody would do it. I wouldn't kill a rat with antifreeze. I really wouldn't. Um, it, it causes renal failure, and the pain that I witnessed that animal go through was just just awful. So you've got to be careful with that stuff. Um, If you did clean it out, I would I would be much more likely to use it for irrigation than water to drink. I'll put it to you that way. But personally, 
Um, I don't care what you did with it. Uh, if you pressure washed it and steam cleaned it, I would still see these. These are chemical drums at this point. If you knew exactly what was in it and it wasn't antifreeze, uh, maybe. It would depend on what it was. If it was uh, denatured alcohol, I, I, I wouldn't be real worried about it once I cleaned it out. Uh, but if it could have been, you know, 90-weight gear oil, God knows what's in that plastic now. Remember, the plastic that's not designed for that is not designed for uh, to be food-grade. So I wouldn't use it for anything that I would consider food-grade in the first place. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take another question. G'day, Jack. Greg Newland here from New Zealand. Um, I hope you can understand me and hear me. This is on a Skype call. Just recently brought two glass houses, um, 888 yards all up. Um, trying to find out who I can talk to about aquaponics on a good scale. No one in New Zealand seems to do it. Uh, and or any advice that you could give would be absolutely wonderful on setting up a huge industrial glass house as I have just purchased this property. I do know how to plant plants, but uh, I'm doing a bit of leap of faith going from gold prospecting to uh, glass house owner. Any help would be appreciated. Love the show heaps. Thank you. Bye. Well, first of all, uh, as you guys can hear, Skype calls come in beautifully. In fact, it may be preferable for you to use Skype uh, over a landline phone to call into the show. And in fact, when we do interviews, we prefer Skype above all other things. Every time we do an interview show and some of you guys comment and go, man, that was the best audio ever for an interview, do that again. It's almost always the case that the uh, the person I was interviewing had access to Skype and was willing to use Skype for the interview, so Skype's cool. Second, I'm just totally honored uh, and humbled every single time someone calls in from a place like New Zealand or Australia or any Japan or any of these places you guys are listening to me around the world. Um, could have never foreseen this when I started the show. So thank you for, for taking the time to participate in our community from all the way over there. And then next is, you know, I met a couple folks from New Zealand. One I had as a business relationship for a while. And when I first met him, I was under the impression, like most Americans, that New Zealand and Australia were like really close to each other. And he's like, that's like a three-hour plane ride from where I live in, uh, in New Zealand to, to Sydney. Um, and it's too bad for you here because, you know, it's like aquaponics. It's like, from what I understand in Australia, you kick a rock and aquaponics guy comes out from underneath it. Uh, so I can't help you with the local stuff. Let me tell you some of my ideas. Number one, there is a book in the MSB by Keith Cutbert uh, from South Africa that really focuses on setting up aquaponics systems on a large scale, uh, using mostly tunnels, not glass houses, but the same principles, and I would recommend that book. If you're a member of the MSB, you can have it for free. If you uh, just want the book and don't want to be a member of the MSB, I'll look up Keith's uh, link today, and you can buy just the book from him. I think it sells for like $19 or something like that. Again, that's free to the MSB. The next is there's a great forum. It's really smaller-scale stuff, but all the principles and practices are the same, and it's the best forum I've found, and it's called Backyard Aquaponics, and I'll put a link in today's show notes to that, and I would get involved with that community. There's a great show uh, with Tanya Sawyer from Colorado Aquaponics, uh, that we did, it was episode 622, I'll put a link in the show notes to that today. Uh, I would check out her site, she has a lot of information on her site, and they do seminars online from time to time, so I would check out Colorado Aquaponics, even though you're in New Zealand. Uh, and then there's a great community called the Aquaponic Gardening Community, 
and it's called aquaponics. Uh, the URL is aquaponicscommunity.com, and I would get involved in some of these online communities, seek out other ones, and start to build up your knowledge base, because in the end, you're the one who has to do the work anyway. Um, you might advertise in your local you know, papers or things like that uh, for someone to act as an assistant during setup, and you might have to pay them a little bit of money to get them to do that, but if you can find someone with some experience, that would shortcut a lot. But all I can advise you right now is to look out uh, at the online communities and start reaching out to these communities and say, this is what I'm about to do. Here's what I have to work with. What what recommendations and advice could you give me? Because I'm not an aquaponics expert. I've actually never built or put together or run an aquaponics system. While I understand the theory very well, it's one of those things that I only talk about so much that I have a lot of practice with. That will change. That will change this year. But I think at your level and what you're looking to do on a commercial level will still be, on, be beyond where I can advise you very much other than basic principles even a year or two from now, because I'm looking at putting together a relatively small uh, home-scale system. But I would tell you that I think what you're doing is smart. It might be the right time to be out of the metal industry anyway right now for a little while. And uh, you're going to be addressing a very critical issue going into the future, food production. And I think we're going to see problems with food production all over the world, and I think it's a great business to be into. So I know it's a little bit of a leap, but believe in yourself, believe that you can get it done, reach out into the communities, because one thing I know about the people that are into this stuff, this aquaponic stuff, is none of them are trying to guard their trade secrets. They're all out there sharing everything that works, because there's so much room in that industry, nobody looks at each other and goes, damn, they're going to take my business. Uh, they know. They know that they, the, the size of the market could triple as far as producers, and they still wouldn't run out of people to sell to. So reach out into that community. Best of luck. And again, thank you for calling all the way from New Zealand. Love to hear from you about your progress over time. Please stay in touch. Um, in fact, I'll tell you what. Um, I'd love to hear back from you, let's say, even just a month from now. And if you want to, drop me an email directly, jack at com. Let me know you called, and I'll look for your call. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey there, Jack. This is uh, Russ up in Northeast Ohio, a big fan of the show. I got two quick questions for you. Uh, first of all, I'm a college student going to school to be a uh, social worker or corrections officer. So uh, a lot of the people I'll be working with, they're not going to be in the best situation. So I was wondering if you had any advice for me on how I could help them out more, like as a prepper. And second, my girlfriend's mom had told me about uh, growing plants out of a straw bale. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Thanks. Man, all you guys are doubling up to me uh, on me today with these two-sided questions, right? Yours is not even camouflage, man. Everybody else was like camouflaging two questions in one. Uh, seriously, though, let's see what I can do for you. On, on the corrections thing, if you're going to be in corrections, I mean, you're talking about being in, in the uh, the prison system. If you're going to be a parole or probation officer, that's kind of different. And if you want to have a positive impact on people, I would pick that over to the corrections facility uh, any day. Working in a prison system is going to be kind of tough, uh, especially if you end up in kind of some kind of a you know medium to maximum security environment. Uh, as a social worker, you're going to have even more opportunity. But no matter what you do, my overall advice, think small towns, think local. The one advantage, because you're not going to make any real money, Okay, you're going to make dirt. I mean, I hope you're not borrowing too much money to go to school for this because you're going to make crap for an income. Um, and you're never really going to be appreciated for what you do. But there's social work to be done and criminal activity in every part of America. So I would think rural, small town, 
Um, if you have that environment to work with, you may be able to, in fact, help people better as far as putting their lives back together. That said, you'll deal with a lot of meth uh, people, I'm sure, in most of small-town America today. Uh, heroin's made a, just an unbelievable comeback in small-town America, and I, I don't understand why. Of all the drugs that are out there to do, I, I really don't get these people on the heroin Uh, one of my best friends in high school, his high school girlfriend, who was also a good friend of mine, I found out many years ago, um, had died from a heroin overdose. And, you know, heroin's something that I thought we were through with. Uh, but in my research, I've determined that it's, 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 it's a really a powerful drug, uh, that's back in, in the gutters of America. So those two things and, and, you know, the dealers and stuff as a probation parole officer, that's, that's some, you know, CD people to deal with. How you can help them as a survivalist, I don't really know. You need to help them more about putting their freaking lives back together. Uh, but having a sense of purpose and call me nuts, but I think a lot of our problems can be solved in a garden. And if we could get a lot, maybe some rehabilitation stuff going on involving food production, I think we'd give people maybe a sense of purpose. And I think that people that are in these, these drug communities, Uh, I'm laughing because my wife is outside, folks. I got to share this with you. My wife, she's not a real good thrower, and she likes to take Max out and throw his toys for him. And she just fished two of his toys out of the pool. And I'm watching as I'm talking to you, and I just see the first one she throws splash. And poor Max is with his paws in the pool trying to dig the toy out six feet deep. But anyway, going back to, it, I think that a lot of the people that. Um, They get into these lines of, of, of uh, criminal activity, uh, the drug dealing and, and things like that. Do it because they have no hope. They have no sense of purpose. They don't get rich. You can talk all you want about how the rich drug dealer this and the rich drug dealer that. For every rich drug dealer, there's a thousand guys out there that are making no more money than they would with a good blue-collar job, if there were any good blue-collar jobs left. Certainly not much more money than they would make with a decent white-collar job if they were you know, qualified for one. It's really about being able to exist and then feeling like you're doing something. You have a hope to get somewhere, and they think you know they're going to be that big-time dealer someday or something like that. And then the drug user, of course, they're trying to escape reality. And that's another thing lacking hope. So I think that whatever you can do, and food production is just one example, anything you can do to like give people a sense of purpose and hope, that's how you get them out of that. And as a social worker, you might deal with a little less far-gone Uh, of an individual, we need somebody to do both, but it might be a better choice. I, that's the best I can do. Come on, I'm not Yoda here. Um, the second part about straw bale gardening. Straw bale gardening is simplistic. Consider it container gardening with a straw bale. The big thing is, if you just go get a straw bale and you cut some slots in it and stick some plants in there and water it, it's not going to do very well. You have to get the, the 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 straw or the hay to begin a composting process. So you're talking about a couple weeks at least of watering it a couple times a day. And one way to accelerate it is to put a thin layer, maybe an inch deep, of compost across the top of it or good garden soil. And then when you're ready to plant, you just cut a slot in it and uh, you know add your, uh, your plants to the straw bale. There is a really good um, website called Straw... I think it's strawbales.com or strawbalegardens.com that covers a lot of this stuff by a guy named Joel... Uh, I'll put a link to that website today. You can check it out. Maybe I'll get him on the air for an interview. I think it would be great. The big thing that you get out of straw bale gardening is one, it's an inst you go get some, I mean, it's not expensive stuff. And if it's a little bit rotted, so much the better. So sometimes stuff that was set aside for feed or what have you, uh, you can get it for dirt cheap because now it's not really good for feed anymore. 
Or, you know, you find guys that shoot archery and have shot their bales up all fall and are ready to get rid of it in the spring, you might be able to get it cheap. So that's one good thing. The other side of it is you don't have to dig anything. You don't have to prepare any beds. You just set it there and start growing. And it works really well. And it's also very low irrigation requirement. If you think about how straw is, especially if it's breaking down, it's 100% organic matter. And I mean real organic matter, not organic USDA organic certified crap lies that we get keep holding to us anymore. But what I mean is it's organic. It's not rock. It's not shale. It's it's organic. And as organic matter, it's very good at retaining moisture. So uh, they do very well with with minimal irrigation. And they can be anything from food production to things that are just very beautiful. So they're a great way to go. Just understand that if you're going to do it, the big thing you got to make sure that you take care of is you've got to be sure to condition the bales before you do your planting. If you just set them outside in late winter, by spring, they'll have conditioned themselves. But if you get your bales in, like, March, and you're going to plant in April, a few weeks of watering and that layer of compost will do wonders to help things along the way. And I would definitely, I've never done it, but I would definitely recommend compost over garden soil because you have more bioactive material in there to kick stuff off. You know, you often see things like people have like compost starter they'll sell you. The best way to start compost is use some existing compost because all the little organisms that are there that need to do the composting action, they're waiting, they're waiting for more food. So there you go on that one. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Adam from Boston. Uh, a question I hope uh, you actually probably have already answered this, but uh, when storing water long-term, I know it doesn't go bad, but everybody seems to, well, lots of people seem to be suggesting I need to add some sort of chemical to it to ensure it stays safe. I've seen recommendations for calcium hypochlorite, for chlorine, for various other items to stick in the water. Um, do you have any recommendations on what I should be adding to the water before I store it long-term? Thanks. See, uh, first I want to tell you that, that this gentleman called back uh, a little bit later the next day and said, throw this question out because I went on your forums and found all the information I needed. I'm not sure what information you found, and you probably did find what you need, and you're probably going to find something very similar to what I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to answer the question for everybody anyway because this was one I get all the time. And I want to start out with saying something like uh, that... As human beings, we just have a hard time accepting reality sometimes because we feel like we need to do something when we don't need to. Uh, nothing can be more true than when I talk about creating, making biltong. Well, if you used a light, then it would be some heat, and could you cook it a little bit? No, you, you don't do that. It just dries out. It naturally pickles. That's how it is. People have been doing it for hundreds of years. The Dutch created it in South Africa. The South African uh, native population has made it their own, as well as the immigrant population has made it their own. It is, it is just, it is what it is, and it's safe, and people eat it all the time, and nobody gets sick and dies. And that's the same thing that goes on with this water thing. There has to be a pathogen in the water for the water to grow more pathogens. If it's clean water, when you store it, it's safe. All right. Then, if you, even if you had a pathogenic, small pathogenic am organism amount, an amount that, let's say, would be considered potable, and you'd worry about it growing over time, it has to have something to feed upon. It has to have, it has, to have something to consume. It can't just sit there and multiply out of just oxygen and hydrogen that is the water. So there would have to be something in there. You had a chemical, um, if you do the wrong thing with it, you might actually supply it what it needs. Who the hell knows? I don't know. This is the way I look at it. If you want to worry about that, 
then take your chemicals that you would use to treat your water, set them aside and store them. And if you ever need to rely on the water and you have any doubts about the water, treat it when you drink it. Okay, But I would say a good filtering system or boiling would be a better countermeasure anyway. But the simple answer is, about once every six months, use the water for irrigation or something like that, uh, and then fill it back up and keep rotating your water more because it doesn't become stale and it tastes like plastic or whatever. But this belief that you need to do something to water to preserve it is just a fallacy. It, it just, it's just nonsense. There's not, water doesn't go bad, and that's it. And you have to just feel, okay, I know water doesn't go bad, but no. No, it doesn't go bad. It either is bad or it isn't bad. But if it's not bad and it's in a sealed container and nothing can get in there, it doesn't then later go bad. It can become stale. It can take on taste characteristics of the container. So a simple way to do this then is you take a whole bunch of potable water grade, you know, food grade barrels, 50 gallon drums. You set them up in a series, you run your garden hose in one end, and you run your garden hose out the other end, and every time you water or use your garden hose, you're pushing water through the barrels. That's, that's an easy way to create automatic rotation. What if you live in a place where it freezes? <sighs> Put the barrels in a place that's protected from freezing temperatures. Or you can't do that, you have to do something different. But my point is, rotating water is a much better thing to do than worry about treating it with chemicals. You have you know water that's chemical free and safe to drink now. Why turn it into chemicalized water? That's my rationale here. I'm not going to change it until someone shows me water that was sealed in a in a food grade container that sat for a period of time that wasn't infected when it was put in the container and later became infected. When you can show me that, I'll open my mind to this. Until then, everybody else. I know the caller says he's already got his answer, but everybody else. Stop sweating this one. It's not one to worry about. We have enough things to worry about without trying to add something for ourselves to do. Now, the question I had was about uh, uh, composted manure. I saw the uh, the documentary about uh, Food Inc. and those big cattle ranches where they're fed corn, probably sprayed with Monsanto poisons. Now, if I buy composted steer manure, will that have... Uh, pesticides in it if I use that for fertilizer on my yard? Am I risking killing my plants? Anyway, thanks for your great show. Well, caller, I want you to know I didn't cut you off there. You ran out of time, and that's why your first thing that was more of a comment, I edited it out. You're, you were just too long. Um, but I wanted to get your question on the air. So your comment, I didn't take it off because it wasn't good. It was just too long, and it, it didn't fit today's show. Uh, and I didn't cut you off there at the end. You just simply ran out of time because even though I give you three minutes and say it's two, you, you talked for three minutes and then some. On your question, um, the answer is yes, but let's be specific and let's understand what we're worrying about here. Is there potential pesticide and t contamination in compost and manure? Absolutely, that's not what's going to kill your plants. Let's make sure that we use the right words because it's important if we're going to debate this in public and if we're going to tell others about it that we, we, you know, we, we sound like we know what we're talking about. Pesticides don't kill plants. Herbicides kill plants. So you have two potential uh, major uh, uh, contaminants in composted manure today because of the way things are done. One is a pesticide and the other is a herbicide. Pesticide is a, is a threat because they spray everything with pesticides. And so it doesn't really have anything to do with GMOs. 
what makes GMO uh, an issue and, and what causes a lot of problems with manure is more than the pesticide issue, it's the herbicide issue. Because they specifically genetically, and this is what the people that think I'm nutty about GMOs, you just don't understand this, okay? And you, you got to listen to this to understand that this means you're eating it too, okay? So what happens is you get feed corn, uh, or feed that's based on soy, or feed that's based on whatever grain that's genetically modified. And that genetically modified grain is uh, Roundup ready or ready for some other herbicide because ConAgra or Monsanto or somebody else has made it that way. It's made it so that genetic, you use genetic engineering, not selective breeding, transmutational viral injected genes. That's how they do it. They get a virus and they use the virus to mutate the gene. Right. Pro, I mean, it sounds like sci-fi, but it's exactly what they do. Take a virus, they pro, they program it, and they set it to carry a gene, and they set this virus to go in and infect the host and transmutate the gene. And they do that in a way that allows the farmer now, for soybeans, for instance, to plant his soy and spray the shit out of his field with Roundup. Do you want to eat Roundup? If you eat soy today and it's not GMO-free, you're eating Roundup because the because it saturates the ground, it saturates the plant, and the plant takes it up. This is how it kills, right? Anything green you usually spray with Roundup dies. That's why it dies because it is absorbed by the plant. It kills the plant. So Monsanto or anybody else doing this game modifies the organism so that when it absorbs it, it doesn't harm it. So then the farmer starts to get resistant weeds, but because he can spray it, he sprays it twice in a season. So twice your, your food has been saturated with this, and then you eat it. <laughs> and people say, you know, well, just wash it off. You can't wash it off. It's in the food. Now, this gets to a bigger problem because you got a far farmer, Joe, down the road, wants to do organic gardening. So he's looking for composted cow manure and things like that. So the cow eats the feed that's treated the same way that the food you're eating. And the cow ingests this, and they say it's biodegradable. Biodegradable, my ass. The cow eats it, craps it out, and it's still there. And then the composted manure is put onto the field, and then the first place the farmer sees it is because the most susceptible thing to a, bio, to a, uh, to a herbicide is a legume. I talked about that earlier today. A bean, a pea, anything like that. All of a sudden, they don't perform very well. Now, the farmer who's using GMO soy that's Roundup Ready doesn't see any problem at all. He can throw manure on his field if he's adding some organic matter, and his soybeans grow just fine. Why? They're conditioned to grow Roundup Ready. But anybody else buying this product... So there's two things here. One, we have to be very careful with where we get things like compost from now because they have insecticides and herbicides in them because they do not break down. They are not biodegradable. That was a lie. It was always a lie, and eventually they had to remove it from their labeling. And if it can go into a cow's mouth through three stomachs, out of his ass, and through the composting process and still be there, we know it was a lie. But the other side of this is this is part of why I am so opposed to genetically modified foods. It's not just the playing God. It's the playing God so that we can take a poison chemical and saturate the item with it, and then feed it to our children, feed it to our elderly, feed it to our general population, feed it to our livestock, and we all bioaccumulate this stuff over time. This is the real danger, and your question is great because it shows exactly what I'm talking about. 
Again, you just have to ask yourself, no matter what anybody tells you, no matter what anybody from the, the big, farms, uh, big farm companies say, no matter what anybody in the, in the politician world says, if a cow can eat it, digest it through three stomachs, crap it out, and then it can be composted at 160 degrees, and it's still there, is it safe? And what are we doing when we take all of this stuff that we used to rely on as organic fertilizer and contaminate it so that nothing can grow eventually. See, the thing is the accumulation will continue to build up. And eventually we'll get to a point where the only way to grow anything in that stuff will be to use genetically modified plants. Why do you, why do you think they're doing it? So there you go. More on the GMO front. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Joel. Uh, my question is, uh, what do you think of dogs as a survival asset and as part of your home defensive plan? Uh, a couple of comments. Uh, I've been a dog handler and a trainer for the past 10 years. Uh, I have integrated dogs into entry teams, sniper and counter-sniper teams, uh, hostile search teams, as well as patrol units. Uh, but my experience is that uh, just as with guns, people that will get dogs without getting quality training for themselves or their dogs as a team, and unfortunately they will suffer because of this. Uh, I've been asked to help several people who were victims of home invasions and various other violent crimes. And uh, many of them had dogs with them, German Shepherd dogs and the like, uh, who did uh, nothing to assist during these uh, violent situations. Uh, these dogs were never exposed to the stress of fighting and did not respond in a beneficial way. So I look forward to your uh, thoughts and comments and uh, hope to hear uh, from you soon. Thanks. Well, I actually think there's a lot of ways to look at that question. It depends on what you want from a dog. And I think that... I actually think you were on the call with Gary Vaynerchuk, and I think you have your own method of training, and I think you're that guy, and I think what you're doing is really cool, and I think you should continue with it, and I think you should build it up, and I'd love to see you be successful with it. But what I'm going to tell you is that not everybody is going to come into not just your unique method of training that you had mentioned on that call, but into training dogs that way, and I'll tell you why. If I have a dog that's just a normal dog that I rely on for some level of defense, it might not be the dog that stands up and does the thing that a dog trained to work with a SWAT team or something like that will, but it's a dog. It's not a weapon. I haven't weaponized the dog. And there's going to be a lot of people that are resistant to that level of training to a dog because they feel like the dog's now been weaponized. And I know if you got the right training and the right control and all, but there's that concern for people, and I think it's a legitimate concern that that dog could be triggered somehow um, and end up attacking someone they don't want it to. So I think that's where there's some resistance there. That doesn't mean you don't do it. It just means that people that are going to have a dog like that are going to take on an added responsibility to a typical dog. The, once a dog is trained that way, um, you, you can say all you want about how good the training is, but unless it's under the control of that trainer, it, something could be triggered. You might tell me that's not possible. I'm going to tell you, I, I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't believe you if you did. I might think it's highly improbable, and I might think the reward outweighs the risk, but it's something I'm going to consider before I ever weaponize my dog, if you want to use that term. Um, if you do it, I think it's it's a great tool and a great asset, but I think forever the dog has changed. I, I don't think he's quite the family pet he used to be. So what is the purpose of the dog? Then I also think there are some other things. One, 
I think a lot of times in situations where these dogs don't assist their owners, the dog's not aware that the threat's really going on. And I think when being attacked, if the owner uh, would to yell, scream, and beg for help, I think they're a lot more likely that dog would, would get in there and do something. I think specifically dogs like German Shepherds. But you're the expert. So if you tell me there's times when they just won't act, and I can see that because I've seen big dogs that actually have certain levels of them that are very timid. And if they were, uh, uh, you know, approached by the attacker, I also remember the show It Takes a Thief, and this guy had this great big um, uh, Rottweiler in his house, and he said, "Yeah, you want to, you know, use my house for a thing, but I'm telling you, that dog's going to tear the guy apart." The guy broke the window, walked right in, petted the dog on the head, talked to the dog as he stole the stuff. So I, I agree with you that this can happen, but I think when the person's getting the dog for defense, they have to ask themselves: Do they want a highly trained defensive member of a team? that's really a work-level dog, like you're talking about, or do they want a dog that's part of an overall system? In other words, all I need my dog is to let me know that you're out there. Between the motion detectors and the dog's ears and the dog's nose and the dog's sense, by the time you get to the door, you're looking down the barrel of a 1911. And if it's a trained you know, force-on-force engagement with some kind of rebel force and the shit that's a fan, that's, that's, you know, that's possible, but it's not likely. Uh, that's out in the road warrior, you know, high high impact, low probability event. The typical thing that the average person worries about with a home invasion, that's a sound policy. So I think that people that have little bitty dogs, I mean, chihuahuas, uh, Pomeranians, dogs like that, I actually see them as great uh, assets. They don't eat much. They're easy to take care of. They live a long time. They're highly alert, and they bark their little brains out. Now, if a guy breaks in your house and he comes after you, and your chihuahua is as furious and strong and tough as a chihuahua can be, and attacks him, he's gonna kick the dog like a football, and he's gone. That's not the point. The point is that dog's there to alert you. So I like what you're. I like where you're coming from. And let's not forget that a dog apparently accompanied SEAL Team Six when they got Bin Laden. So dogs can be highly trained like this. I just think that the average guy that buys a dog that's going to be part of his family with two little kids, one still crawling around on the floor, might not want to go to that level of, let's call it again, dog weaponization. Um, The mature couple that lives alone out in the sticks might do well to train a dog that way. But again, I think that once you train a dog beyond the basic defensive instinct that's in most of them, you go to a higher level of responsibility with that animal, and you'd probably completely agree with me. You sound like a guy I'd love to have on the show for an interview sometime, and maybe we can hash some of these questions out between us. But when you bring it up that way, that's what it makes me think. Let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, this is uh, Steve from uh, Steve and Tracy in Kentucky. I was just listening to your show on uh, 12 Methods of uh, Feeding Yourself. I was talking about the fishing section. We fish at a little local lake. And it appears to be clean, but I've heard lots of people say, oh, I'd never eat fish to come out of there, you know, and this and that. And I was wondering if you had any, you know, method for determining if the water is safe to eat fish from or any key things other than, you know, pollution floating on top of the water that you can look for to determine whether or not a fishing source, a fishing source is safe. Uh, thanks for the podcast. Well, there's a couple different things you can do. One, you can go to your fish and game department see if they have any advisories against um, keeping or eating fish, whether it would be an all-out don't eat fish from this area or we recommend you only eat fish once a week or once every two weeks, one meal every two weeks. When you see things like that, it's generally about mercury. 
And, and here's the, the very sad reality that there's mercury in almost all of our groundwater today. And number one people you can blame for it is the coal industry. And that's, again, where I just get tired of the global warming people. You know what? Don't tell me that CO2 is raising the temperature of the planet when you can't prove it for nothing but other than a freaking graph, that I can make a graph say anything I want based on how I manipulate it. Why don't you tell people about the mercury that's going into their groundwater? The massive amounts of mercury that, that there's almost no place you can get fish from now without mercury concern. So uh, let's say you, there's no warnings or those like you know, the moderate typical warnings. One thing you could do is get a sample of the water and send it off for independent analysis, and it wouldn't be very expensive, and there's plenty of local resources you could use to do that. Um, so you might just have the water tested for your own insight. The other thing that we have is a big pollutant in our groundwater, especially in our freshwater throughout America today, uh, are PCBs. And we don't use them anymore, but they were used a lot. Generally, when it's known that a body of water has PCBs, there's an all-out ban. Do not eat fish from this water. So generally, if that is a problem, you'll know it because um, that it'll just it'll be noted that way. A perfect example here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area is there's a lake uh, in Grand Prairie called Mountain Creek Lake, and it had, has PCBs that have leached into it, and um, that's just, you cannot keep fish out of there. It's a, it's an outright ban against keeping fish uh, from that lake. And it's a shame because it's actually a really cool-looking lake. And I think that it would be a, a great uh, angler's lake if that wasn't the case. So um, th those are your two big ones. And, of course, there's other things. But independent analysis is probably the simplest, easiest thing. You can get a vial. You send it off to a laboratory and say, what's in this water? And, uh, you know, specifically talk to the lab about testing it, considering it's water that's used for fishing. Are there any particular things that are in there? My personal advice with all fish is no more than one meal a week. And I don't care if your state says the water's pure, if the state says it's not. I don't care what they say. Uh, I limit fish intake from all sources to one meal a week because I know that there is mercury in just about anything you can eat anymore. It's sad, but it's true. And there is a certain amount of natural, I mean, people that are defending the coal giants, there's a certain amount of natural mercury that leaches into the whole planet, and that's true. And it's a, it's an element, and it's you know that's the way it is. But when they mine coal and when they burn coal, it reduces additional mercury into our atmosphere and additional mercury into our groundwater. And stuff goes in the atmosphere, ends up in the groundwater. It's one of the dirtiest secrets of the coal industry. Uh, it shouldn't be a secret. Everybody should know this, but very few people talk about this. You know, very few people talk about the sulfuric uh, oxidation of the groundwater around coal mines because there's always sulfur. I mean, there's so much reason to oppose coal, and, and it just it, it it boggles my mind that the environmentalists today have their heads so far up the polar bear of global warming's ass that they can't see the real pollution for what it is. And I really think that you guys that are environmentalists, if you can find a more compelling reason and get people to listen to you and you still believe in global warming, well, if we burn less coal, you still get what you want. But there are so many reasons to oppose this, and your question is one of them. Mercury, the other big you know, gotcha in these polluted situations, is PCBs, and then anything else that can run off. So you have to look at where is all the hard, hardscape runoff. There's probably, you know, if there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of highway runoff and stuff, you can deal with some oils and petroleum contaminations and uh, gas residues and things like that. But if I was really concerned, I'd send a sample off, and I'd accept the fact that there's going to be some level of pollution in anything that we eat, anything that we breathe, anything that we drink today, there is no such thing as anything that's... You can go to the wilderness of Alaska 
And because, you know, the way the atmosphere works and the way things like the weather work, you're going to find some level of contamination. So my best guidance for you on fishing, yeah, it's a great way to feed yourself about once every seven days maximum. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Uh, Darren from Glendale, California here. I'd like to know if there's any technology or reference that I could take advantage of in planning my evacuation routes uh, out of a major metropolis. I'm lucky enough to have, you know, be working in my fantasy job, you know, something that I've been striving for since I can remember, and I've made a really good career for myself, but unfortunately it has to be here in Los Angeles. My traffic is already pure hell on a daily basis, so I can't even imagine what it would be like if every rat was, was trying to jump ship. So any ideas would be appreciated. Um, on a personal note, I love this show. Uh, you're a very humble guy, but you need to know that you have fundamentally changed my life. The way I think about finance, uh, my family's security, uh, the way I read the news, uh, <laughs> I could not have put my preps in place without using your approach on uh, if times uh, times get tough or even if they don't. Uh, if I, <laughs> I hadn't told my wife, honey, I hate that you have to go to the grocery store so often. <laughs> my wife would never have gone for donating half of our closet crap so we could get a pantry system. Uh, I look forward to every show. I love your style. Uh, I don't agree with you on everything. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, don't take any wooden nickels. Thanks. Um, first of all, thank you for the kind words, and I almost edited that part out because I don't feel like I need my horn tooted or anything, but I also felt like you wanted to say it, and I also feel like when somebody pays you a compliment, you listen and you say thank you. So so thank you very much, and I'm glad that's worked out for you. And I, I think people can also um, learn from what you just said about you know converting your spouse. Honey, don't you hate that you have to go to the grocery store every single week? Honey, don't you hate that we spend so much money on groceries? So, so with that. Now, as far as electronic resources for getting out of Dodge, your two big ones are Google Maps for planning your routes and a GPS. Um, and I'm not going to say much more than that. Go use them. Plan multiple routes. I recommend that you have at least three routes to three different de destinations. So that's at least nine routes planned. You do them on Google Maps. You, you print them out. You keep them in every single vehicle. You have them labeled so that if you and someone else need to get together, you're looking at the same thing. And, and you can look at all the documents. I did some shows on documentation planning, and I think that would be a great one for you to look up. I'll put a link in today's show notes to that. Uh, again, a show on doc planning. Um, but this is more what I want to say about this. You can have all kinds of routes, but if you get to the point, like you say, where all the rats are trying to ju jump ship at the same time, uh, you, it doesn't matter where your routes are, you're going to be in trouble. The good news, if there can be such a thing, 90% of the time or better, when there's a need to get the hell out of a city, when getting out is going to be an option. In other words, if there's an earthquake and shit falls on top of you, getting out is just, you know, it, it is what it is at that point. You do the best you can. And a lot of the paths to get out are going to be impa impaired, and hopefully you can at least get home, if nothing else. So those are generally not evacuation uh, events. The general public is dumb. They, they really are. They're just dumb. I watched the, the Republican debates last night with my wife, and she's like, man, that's a great point, that's a great point, especially some of the stuff Dr. Paul was saying. And I was like, yeah, but see, the problem is that most people just don't have any idea what he just said. 
and and that's a problem for our nation. But for us, as a as somebody that needs to get out of a town, uh, it's an advantage. And here's what I mean by that: uh, three days from now, we think the hurricane might land here, but we're not sure. We're considering mandatory evacuation orders. That means get out now. That's what it means to me. That, that means I'm going to leave. I'm going to monitor things, and if I need to, I'm going to come back. All right. So I think you know there's a, a court decision expected soon that may result in riots. Ugh. You know, if you're going to be where the epicenter is, it means get out now, jump a day or two early. I think is this is the biggest thing we can do as preppers that live in high density areas is not just about knowing where to go and how to get out, but be mentally, emotionally prepared. And this is things like being able to afford a day or two off of work. To take a couple personal days because it might not turn into what you think it's going to turn into, and just tell your boss, you know what? I know you don't think it is. I don't care. I have personal days anyway. I'm taking them, and be, or you know, even if you if you, if you don't get paid for them, to, to be ready to go. That's that's the big thing, and to be paying attention, and to when the situation. When here's the big one. When you're thinking, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't, and that's all that it is, well, you can maybe pay a little attention for a little bit longer and get a few more facts. When you get that feeling in your gut, and you just feel like, I think this is the right thing to do right now, do it. If you do it, and the event passes, and it's not that big a deal, and you're gone for a day or two when you go home, you won't regret it. It won't be a big thing. You, you, the world will not end for you over it. If you feel that way, And then you end up in the middle of it. It's going to be a totally different type of regret, and it may be a regret that costs you emotionally, spiritually, financially. It may cost you your life. So the bigger issue is not what resources you use to, to, to plan or actively get out. The big thing is having the plan in place and being prepared to execute it before everybody else does. And it's generally, it's not always the case. There, it's like, you know, how do I be 100% safe in my vehicle? Don't get in it. The minute you get in your car, you risk death. So we can't get to a point where we're 100% prepared for everything. It's just not possible. But we can understand the dynamic of the public around us that will wait until the last minute to do things, and we can act before they do. We can have first mover advantage. Getting out, let, let, let's use Rita, Okay. So Rita is headed toward the Houston area, East Texas, uh, West Louisiana, Gulf area. And people wait. Oh, I don't know if we're going to evacuate or not. And they wait. Oh, no. And then they wait. And then they say, yeah, get out. And because Katrina just happened, everybody goes. And people died on the highway during the Rita evacuation. There were some older people they're, they're like in, in like buses and stuff like that from old folks' homes uh, where they, they lost air conditioning because they ran out of gas because they were on the and they had heart attacks and died. But one day before all that, when the thing was already churning out there in the Gulf and the path was already on your TV projected and you were in that area and you were already in the center red column of it, you could have gotten your car and drove out with no problem whatsoever. So I, this is not just for you, this is for everybody. If you live in a high-density population, have a plan and be prepared to go. And my methods of prep are GPS and, and, and maps and having multiple routes planned in advance. And when you leave town for a reason and you know the fastest way is Interstate 30 but you have a secondary route planned, drive it. Add an hour to your four-hour trip. It's worth it. 
to determine if it was a good plan. And if it wasn't, you know, modify your plan. So use these routes once in a while, even if it's a little bit of an inconvenience. Uh, there's a saying that the... Uh, the 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 uh, the, the, uh, the the Russian uh, special forces used to say, and I'm I'm sure it's probably been in other places as well. Uh, but Val from uh, Valryazanov.com taught me this: those who sweat the most in peacetime bleed the least in war. And I think that we can sweat a little bit by inconveniencing ourselves to verify our routes once in a while. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey Jack, this is Brian from Georgia again. Uh, I've got a three sisters garden. And I've got a uh, big mound of ants and anthill in uh, about the center of it. I was just wondering if that's something that's going to be harmful to squash, corn, and beans, or if it will actually be helpful to help uh, keep down on any kind of worms and, uh, well, caterpillars and that kind of stuff. Um, let me know. I want to know if I need to eradicate these ants. They're just the little bitty black fish ants, um, so they're not fire ants. Otherwise, I would have just killed them anyway because I hate fire ants. But, uh, yeah, let me know uh, what the deal on that is. Thanks. Personally, I'd leave them alone. They're one of the greatest predators that we have out there, even if they're the dead-gone imported fire ants, which is probably in Georgia most likely what you have. Unless you have a member of the family life that's severely allergic to their bites or whatever, and, and with an understanding, you need to realize that that's where they are, that they're there. Um, and an understanding that maybe you do want to eliminate them at some point because they have a tendency to grow. Generally, you see with fire ant mounds, one year there's a couple, the next year there's a bunch, and the next year there's tons of them, and the next year they go through these cycles. So you're, you're contributing to that expanse cycle if you allow one to stand, but uh, they'll probably do a really good job of pest control. My uh, results with leaving, and I've had fire ants in just about every garden bed I've had, and I've never tried to eradicate them, um, unless they get to a point where I can't work in the garden without being attacked. And then they got to go, and then there's a, 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 there's a product called Enfuego that's a natural product that you can get rid of them with. Um, but they tend to do a really good job of pest control. Anything that ventures into there is dead. Right, they're going to be chewed up, stung, cut up, and taken down underground. I have never had a problem with them eating my vegetables and things like that. The only exception has been figs and other vegetables that are past the problem. Once the vegetable starts to rot or starts to get like a, if it gets a bad spot on it that gives them an entry point, they'll consume that vegetable, which to me is not a problem because they're also going to consume any pests that are attracted by that. With figs, though, you leave a fig on the tree until it's ready to just fall off. In fact, when they drop is best, but you know when you just touch them, they fall off. That's the best time to pick them. Well, as they get close to that, a lot of times they'll form a little hole in the base, and, and, you, and once that happens, ants will start going in there and feeding on the right fig. Other than that, I've had no problems with ants and squash, tomatoes, peppers, you name it. They pretty much leave it alone until it's you know until I missed it or it's damaged or it's been infiltrated by a pest. Which again, I see it as an advantage, just like a chicken cleaning up the drop rotten fruit and breaking the fruit fly cycle. In a three sisters garden, I can't see any problems at all. So unless you have an allergic issue or they become such a um, a hindrance that you can't work in your garden without being attacked, because that's no fun. Uh, I'd let them be. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Just hit the gold mine. Uh, today was 
Folk Pickup Day, actually tomorrow. So I uh, ran around with the trailer and scored a whole bunch of things, including a four-foot round, about two-and-a-half-foot deep spa tub that looks like it'll be perfect for my little hydroponics venture. So uh, my thought is just to tell all the listeners that they should check when their bulk pickup days occur in their areas and uh, be ready to scope things out and pick up the goods. Just my little tip for the day. Well, that's a great tip. And, you know, what it made me think of is every time we have something we have to get rid of uh, that is a bulky item. We don't really have bulk pickup days. Uh, what we have to do is call our uh, our garbage uh, service and basically say we have a bulk item. And sometimes they'll say, well, you need to hold off till the next pickup. But it's basically it can be either one of our garbage days that they'll do it. They just need to know in advance. But what we've noticed is like we had this old gas grill, and it was just a piece of crap. And I probably could it was made out of stainless steel, so I probably could have got down to the scrapyard and got a few bucks for it. But we were right in the middle of all this move and stuff, so we wanted to get rid of it. We called them up. They said, yeah, just throw it out there. So we put it out there. Um, and about two hours later, it was gone because somebody came and got it. And I know damn well the people that came and got it weren't from the, uh, the you know the, the the trash people from the city. Uh, so of course I don't care. It's garbage. Anybody can have it. So it's an interesting idea. I just think you'll find that in some places they have like the third Wednesday of every month in this town is bulk pickup day, like you're talking about. And then on some other places it's going to be you just kind of have to know when garbage days are and make your rounds. Some places basically what they do is like if you have a, let's say they do a garbage pickup on Monday and Thursday, Monday is for bulky items and you have to call and notify. So you have to find out what it is for your area. But it's a great tip and there's a reason I saved it for last. Um, usually I just take the calls anywhere they receive, but this is a great bridge to Tuesday's show. Uh, of course I'll be back Monday with a listener feedback show. Uh, I have the silver show planned for Wednesday. But Tuesday we're doing a money saving show. All your tips and tricks on how you put money back into your pocket. Well, here's a great one. I, I imagine you can find some really cool stuff uh, doing this. And I think you can find a lot of stuff for projects doing this. And I'm wondering if that hot tub is uh, slated for aqua, not hydroponics. But uh, I bet that's the case. And I think that's cool. I'd love it when you do that, when you set it up. I'd love you post some pictures, send me an email, do something. Let me know what you did with that. I want to see that. But here's just a perfect example, kind of a teaser. And let me tell you something about this money-saving show, folks. It might be two money-saving shows. It might be three. I mean, the folder is massive, full of information that's come in for you, but I want more of it. So as long as they tell you that is if you don't hear your tip or your email read or something like that, you don't hear one just like it read, because uh, if two send me the exact same thing, I'm going to pick one and read it. Don't be offended. I'm probably going to do a second, maybe even a third show with this. Just the link section alone. Basically, tomorrow, all I'm going to work on, uh, yeah, I'm going to work Saturday because i got this you know, short week coming up and all. Um, all I'm going to do tomorrow is go through it and pull out all the websites and resources and links and get those ready for the post that goes along with this. That's going to be massive in of itself. You guys are doing a lot of good with that. If you want to participate in that, just send me your email and the way that you save money and put money back into your wallet every month and mail that to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com and put TSP Money Saver in the subject line. To be on a show like this in the future, then you need to pick up the phone and mash those numbers, 866-65-THINK. And with that, I am going to wrap up today. Thanks, last caller, for that tip. That's a great one. It's one I really hadn't thought of, and with what just happened, I probably should have. The thing is, I'm trying to declutter. So once I get established up there, I may have to take up this little hobby myself. Who knows what we could find? And I'd also love your stories if you've done for the money saving show. If like if this you've done this or you've done something else, you know tons of people have recommended. Just tell me what you've scored with it. 
or what you found or, or something like that. That would be cool as well. And with that, I hope everybody has a great weekend. Uh, I want to thank you guys again for being such an awesome audience. I have the most awesome audience in the world and the most awesome community in the world as far as I'm concerned. I put that on Facebook for you guys yesterday. I said it because I meant it. And uh, I really, really appreciate each and every person that listens to this show. Um, thank you for helping me grow by sharing it with others. That's what it's all about. If you're a new listener and you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. That's how the show became what it is in the first place. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they know. Nobody up there cares.